0: You don't wanna miss it. I was wanna get it. Ha. This sound like theme music. Motivation to grind and get you through it. I'm bothered, never losing. Check the score. Jamel's show improving. Don't make me tell you 511 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My work. You don't wanna miss it. I was wanna get it.
1: Recently, I took my husband on a movie date at this cool spot in greater Los Angeles called Rooftop Cinema. Where on the rooftop of this parking structure, they've set up an outdoor movie theater with concessions, a bar, seating that allows you to get hugged up on that somebody special. Just the perfect thing to do when the weather is good and you want a chill, romantic vibe. But beyond just being with my husband, On a warm Sunday afternoon and enjoying seeing Creed 3, which was really good. The other thing I loved is that the movie was only two hours long. And that's the word of the week. Hallelujah. I don't know if y'all noticed this, but movies are too damn long. Just like the rent is too damn high, movies too damn long. Now, I'm a big fan of Marvel movies. I believe I've seen every one of them. As much as I enjoy those films, they've been a bad influence on the rest of the movie industry. A lot of Marvel movies are over two hours. Avengers Endgame broke the Marvel record at three hours. Wakanda Forever was two hours and 40 seconds. Marvel is a multi-billion dollar franchise and has frankly earned the right to have long ass movies. But some of these other movies haven't earned that right. And they want to hold you hostage in the theater All damn day. Now I've seen billboards all over LA promoting that forthcoming film Oppenheimer which stars Matt Damon and Robert Downey Jr. Speaking of Marvel movies Oppenheimer is three hours long son. Which made me think damn that's almost about how long it takes me to get my braids touched up. Like I could almost drive to Vegas in that length of time. It used to be that most movies were under a smooth two hours. But the shit is out of control now. My husband and I recently also watched John Wick 4. That shit was two hours and 49 minutes. Listen, I love John Wick, but in damn near three hours, it ain't that many different and creative ways we can see my guy blow somebody's head off. That movie could have had 45 less murders and saved us all a strong 30 minutes. Like a lot of people, my attention span just ain't what it used to be. So I'm begging the movie industry, stop thinking every movie needs to be three hours or close to it. I promise just as many people can be haunted, just as many buildings and cars can be blown up. And that romantic comedy can romantic comedy in all in two hours. And thank you again, Michael B. Jordan, who not only starred in Creed three, but directed it for making an entertaining movie that I could watch in full during a plane ride. Hallelujah to that. The word of the week.
0: Just give me a second to speak.
1: It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. It's ironic I was just criticizing the length of films these days because my guest today had an indirect but important cameo in one of the longest sports documentaries ever made. Only this 10 part documentary on the NBA's greatest player was pretty compelling. And it had my guest today trending on social media for days. It's a pretty hard flex when one of your top superfans is Michael Jordan. Just one of many flexes my guest can make. He is also a Grammy nominee, one of the top male R&B singers over the last couple decades. He's given us timeless music, wedding songs, I'm in love with you songs, breakup songs, just very heartfelt songs. He helped us understand we are never too busy for love. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, the soulful Kenny Lattimore. So, Kenny, I'm very happy to have you here on the podcast. You know, like a lot of people have been listening to you forever. I know your wife. And I feel like, you know, you are definitely just one of those people who consistently has just been in our lives and been the soundtrack to our lives for the last few decades. But before we get any deep into your career, to what you're doing now, to you being a new father, I'm going to ask you a question I ask every guest that appears on the podcast. And that is, when did you become unbothered?
2: You know what? I'll take you to a specific incident. My uh, aunt, my Aunt Lauren, who's my mother's only sister, sat me down after I had recorded Never Too Busy and did the video. That was my first single. And she looked at it and she said, you know what? Kenny, this looks really great. I think you have a hit song. I think the people are going to love it. Uh, you look great in it. And she just affirmed me in so many ways. And then she turned to me and she said, but you know, everybody's not going to like you. <laughs> <laughs> and it hit me like a knife, like, uh, like, uh, like, wait a minute, I'm this new artist. I'm your nephew. I'm just, you know, get it. And at that point, I realized that what she said to me in that moment would would have to become a part of my fabric for the rest of my life in order for me to be okay being in the industry because it's a fickle industry and it's about people, all the entertainment stuff is about people liking you. At that point, I let it go. And I started feeling like, okay, the the key is for me to be who I am authentically. Then fast forward, just six months after the single had been out, everything is rolling. I'm in a parade in New York city. And I look out at the thousands of people in the audience, I'm waving. Hey everybody, yeah, yeah. And I see out of thousands of people, one person, and this lady looks up. This young young lady looks up, and she goes, "I do not like him." And I could see it. I could, you know, I mean, she literally did just like this. She's, you know, so I I could I could read her lips and everything. And I was like, "Why is this happening to me in this moment?" That was my unbothered moment. I I got to a point right within then that I said, I have to still be me because somebody does like me and somebody wants to connect to me. Whether they like me or not, somebody wants to connect to me, there's an audience for my my music. And I did not take things as personal as I could have. Like for the rest of my career, the rest of my life, that one statement from my aunt and then having something happen right afterward to confirm what she said absolutely changed my life. And I was like, eh.
1: Well, I know a pretty important somebody that loves you, and that's Michael Jordan. So, <laughs> oh man, yes. I was like, was he at the parade? <laughs> How validating!
2: When the last dance was being uh, put together, I think they moved it up. It was supposed to be like in August or something. They go, "We're going to do it in May or whatever." And it's in the pandemic. I'm at Costco <laughs> shopping, trying to get all those big items that we couldn't get during the pandemic, and. The production company from ESPN's is like, okay, we're gonna do this last dance project. We so they said, you know what? The, there's a piece in the in the project where we ask Michael Jordan who he's listening to, and he says Kenny Latimer. Okay, fine. I knew he was a fan in general because I lived that. You know, I lived that moment years ago, but it wasn't exactly the moment that we saw on on television. I never saw him on the bus. I never heard him respond. I just knew that. He used to call me to do functions, and, and he was a big fan. He let me know. He was a huge supporter. I ran at Charles Barkley one day. Charles Barkley was like, man, MJ single-handedly was marketing you throughout the NBA. You know, that's <laughs> all. So I would go places, and all of the NBA players would know who I was, and I'd be like, wow, this is amazing. But a lot of this stuff, I didn't find out till later in terms of how vocal he was in promoting my music or talking about however my music had had affected him. So just like the rest of the world, I watched The Last Dance and I was like, oh, this is the part. Now, I should say just just for uh, detail's sake that because the song had to be licensed to ESPN for the documentary, that was the reason why they called me to let me know. Okay, it has to be licensed. Do you give your approval? Absolutely, I give my approval, but I still sit there like the rest of the world to see what is he gonna really say and what did they capture on camera? <laughs> and when he got into it, I, I completely forgot that I had sent him this advanced copy of my From the Soul of Man project and the days like this. And I'm sitting there, like, my mouth drops, and I'm just and Faith had just run to the, to the bathroom. You know how you're like, Faith, here it is, faith, and she's like. <laughs> And and this whole thing unfolds and then my phone blows up immediately, oh my gosh, all these like hundreds of text messages and calls start to come in. And they're like, did he just say Kenny Lattimore was he willing to do? And then he goes on to brag about how it's that nobody else had it. I thought it was fun. Oh, now, let me tell you how important it was to be um, unbothered at that point, was, it was very important for me to be unbothered at that point because memes came. So many people were like, <laughs> you know, you have the people that really love it and they're just like, oh my God, he represented R&B and all this other stuff. And we love hip hop, but R&B is, you know, taking a different kind of position now. So you have the, the lovers of that who are like, well, this is a win for R&B. And then you had the people who wanted to be me in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and they were coming up with all kinds of, the, the, the internet is undefeated. It was it was. Fun. And because I was unbothered, because I had that those moments so early in my career and in my life, I was able to enjoy every moment of it as opposed to what are they saying? You know, why? are they You know, it was a blast,
1: man. I think the part that surprised people was that it's when he chose to listen to you as well. Like, I'm sure he listened to you around the house, but the fact that he was using your music. And listening to it before the finals, it was like a, and that's what I didn't know. of all the times we would not have guessed that
2: <laughs> right and i had I had no idea that the only explanation I could give uh, when people were asking me about that was because I think of my music as being calming and soothing, correct so maybe he has, maybe the force of his energy was so intense that he needed that balance of the soothe, you know, before he went to, to just balance him out for his greatness. <laughs> you know, you make up something.
1: <laughs> well, you just said a second ago that he had reached out to you before about some performances. So what was it like when you finally met him or when you like really realized that Michael Jordan was a fan of yours?
2: Really surreal. I actually, to take you back and give you the full history. I got a call some years ago when Never Too Busy came out, my first single again, to... Uh, be a part of the cologne remember the michael jordan cologne i do well <laughs> so he wanted to use the cologne and have, the, have never too busy playing and that he was supposed to be in the mirror like getting dressed or something shaving and i didn't write never too busy so there was some kind of dispute with the song being used and the publishers and people that own the song said no can you believe that <laughs> <laughs> I was devastated. Yes, I'm going to say the word devastated because as a young artist and a fan, I was like, wow, I didn't think I'd ever meet him. After that, I was like, oh, well, you know, that, wow, that, that happened. And I get a call a little later on when he's doing um, some branch launch uh, promotional events. He had, had like a dinner or something. It was really intimate in New York. And I was asked if I wanted to go in. And I was like, of course I want to go in. So when I got there, I remember sitting and waiting, like, through sound check, for him to come downstairs because they said, Michael Jordan wants to come downstairs, and he wants to meet you. You know, you got your suit on, you're like, oh man, you know, get yourself together. And Ahmad Rashad was there too. He said, this is my buddy. They come in and great big hug. He gave me these big hugs, like, pick me up in the air, kind of like, wow. And I'm thinking, this is this is interesting because... I don't know. I don't, I don't even know how to put it in words how it was like, wow. But I knew he was a super fan because he was, he took me aside. He said, I only want Ahmad and I to come into this room first. This is my first meeting with him. He said, I, I want you to sing for just me and Ahmad first before anybody comes into the room. And I want you to sing a song called Forever, which was an album cut.
1: <laughs> he went with a deep cut.
2: <laughs> he went with a deep cut. And I was like, if he's going for forever, then he's a fan for real, you know? And what was really funny was I brought Barry Eastman who produced for you. And Barry Eastman, for whatever reason, knew that song. Go figure. Barry said, Oh, it's the one that he started playing the chords. And I was like, okay, because forever was not even on my set list. It wasn't even in my mind, you know, but I wrote it. So I sat there and um we figured out the chords and stuff. And I I sang forever for him. And Ever since then, it was like he would call me back for other things and his wife at the time would uh, launch restaurants and they'd call me and I'd sing for that. It it was just amazing. What an amazing time.
1: You said something um, a moment ago that I don't want to lose uh, track of, is that when you were were talking about the different places that R&B and hip hop are in right now, what is the landscape right now for R&B singers?
2: I think that for R&B singers, there's a new space. Because I think we've gone through decades of the music industry changing and what being appreciated, what the music industry has decided to appreciate and promote has been changing. So I lived through the whole idea of, uh, let me see, we were doing R&B, R&B was king. And then here comes Biggie and Pop and you know all the, the names that most people know, even if they don't listen to hip hop. and. The landscape begins to change, but what I always loved was that R&B and hip hop were always a force together. It started out that way from the '80s that I remember. I know it goes back further than that, but the '80s when uh, when it was Grandmaster Flash and all that, and, and good times, and you know they would using they would use Sheik or use a sample of something that was R&B usually or jazz, and have this this great merger. Of creativity that was uh, was so explosive and intense and original. So here we are, after um, things have become commercialized and <laughs> um, a lot of things have changed. The lyrical content has changed. The purpose has changed. And through the years, singing be- began to be, uh, you know, we want we want singers that sounded like other singers. And that's what, 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 you know, the industry did a lot of times. We, there was a time when R&B singers were all original. If you think of, you know, before my era, it was, uh, or even in my era, Joe doesn't sound like me, Maxwell, D'Angelo, we all, if we are on a record, music soul child, buddy, um, it you sounds like nobody else. Jill Scott is not going to sound like Gladys or Patty or Shaka or whatever. All these distinct voices used to be the greatest uh compliment it was it was the greatest compliment for for your voice to be distinctive so now that we've gone through so many eras of okay now we want the look and we want you to sound like a commercialized singer uh which was the dream girl story if anybody saw the the movie dream girls that was the the whole story of it um now i think this new generation wants something raw they want something original so when we hear Jasmine Sullivan they're like woo these runs and th- this girl can really, really sing. And yes, she can. And whether she you know, gets her, well, now she's getting her accolades, which is so wonderful, even if she had been getting them 10 years ago, because she was still out then and she should have got them back then too.
1: <laughs> right. She could have gone in any era of, of R&B. Absolutely.
2: She could have gone in any era of R&B, but there are a lot of singers now who appreciate that. So now I think this next generation wants those gospel roots. They want that, that passion for singing that the generations before us had that was squashed through the music industry. Am I going too far with all this music industry?
1: No, no, I know. I think you're, you're, you're dead on. It's it's a fascinating conversation to me because, um, I've seen several people observe. I had Tank, he was a guest on the podcast and I know you were on his podcast and he said something that stayed with me. He said, Nowadays, it feels like people would rather hear a rapper sing terrible as a as a R&B artist than they would like a real R&B artist sing. Like they'd rather a rapper sing to them. And I'm like, yeah, I I don't. I mean, some of them sound very melodic. Don't get me wrong, but like I don't want a whole album of that. Like if I want somebody to sing to me, I want somebody to sing to me. I don't know if you felt that shift as well, where when the rappers started singing, they kind of cut into what y'all did. <laughs> it
2: did, and that became a part of it. That for for a decade, you know when Drake came, and, and some of these people can sing, or T-Pain can sing, but they chose to use the auto-tune as a part of the gimmick, as a part of the separation of their sound. And and it was successful for them, which was great. And we love their songs, and we, we get hype off their songs. But unfortunately, in Black music, I don't know if it's like this in other forms of music, but in Black music, it's almost like we get put into a, a square, and it's like, Only one or two of you is going to exist. And this is what we want from you specifically. Uh, And I experienced it on on multiple levels. When I first came out singing Never Too Busy and For You, I used to feel this way. Now, regardless of whether people agree with this or not, I'm unbothered. I can say this. (laughs) I used to have a lot of people say, I don't get it. And I was like, what? don't you get, you You don't get a black man saying, saying to his woman, uh, for you, I give a lifetime of stability. And I think that was part of the problem I had when I first came out in terms of visibility, although I did get it. And I'm very grateful for all of the visibility that I received. A lot of times people consider me to be underrated. Oh, you're underrated. And I'm like, okay, I'm underrated. I think because when I came out, Hip-hop was so popular and the imaging of of Pac and, and, and Biggie and all of them was so, uh, so huge. Um, and R. Kelly, even at the time, that really a lot of the industry wanted me to be more like that than saying, hey, well, Black men are really more diverse than that. Men are more diverse than that. People are more diverse than that. We can have a, a Kenny Lattimore and still have a D'Angelo and have you know, whoever else, you know, all of these different sides are actually who we are as people. They're human traits, they're human experiences and stories that everybody can relate to if we allow these stories to be told. But um, I felt like I got a lot of resistance. So moving fast forward, I think that now that we've gone through all those periods that you, that you and I were talking about, the rapper uh, singing, all the other stuff, the new generation is not used to hearing singing anymore. They're not used to hearing live singing because the music industry began to dictate and tell us who we were supposed to be. Isn't Kenny Lattimore support? Wait a minute, he sang this song for you, but he's black and he's young, so he should have this image instead of me actually being who I was. There is nothing R&B, about my song for you, except that a Black man is singing it. So the places where it was marketed, I am very proud that the Black community and R&B listeners embraced for you, because the lyrics are very sophisticated. And the commitment and everything that I'm talking about is so deep that at first, I thought, no, they're gonna have to market this worldwide because I don't know. I'm talking about fidelity and and you know stability and all sorts of stuff in this on this. Is that gonna resonate? But it was only marketed to black people. It was only marketed to blacks, to black people. So when I see my Caucasian brothers and sisters, and I see my um Asian and Latina brothers and Latino brothers and sisters. It's um Well, some of them know the song, but it's almost like it's brand new. That's part of my success, too. As much as I could complain and be like, oh, they didn't market it that way. I'm not complaining about it. Because every year somebody new discovers for you. Because it wasn't crammed down their throat, you know? <laughs> and it's timeless, so there is this thing that happens with the song that it just keeps living on and on and on and tells our story. But still, back to what you were saying, and I'm sorry, and I'll end it here with it. I think that the new generation is fascinated by people who really sing because they have not heard that very much up close and personal. So I would go into the school system, whether it was elementary or or middle school or high school, and um, the kids wouldn't know who I was, but I, I love mentoring. I'd go in, oh, I'm going to go in on career day. I'm going to tell you about the music industry. Let's talk about dreams and visions. And Because my mother used to speak to me that way. So I, I give that to kids. But when I open my mouth and I sing, they're completely floored. Like, how is this happening almost? you know? <laughs> because I think that they just haven't seen it as much. They haven't studied it as much. I come from classical, jazz gospel and all these things I've studied for years where we're raising generations or we did raise a generation of people who want some kind of instant, I just want to sing something to put on TikTok and YouTube and become famous, as opposed to those of us that really struggled to learn the craft and to understand our fullest potential in the craft.
1: And of course, as we know, if you want to call it old school R&B, which I guess they would now... There's always going to be a forever home for that. And that's why I love seeing somebody like Anita Baker get her flowers. Now, the way she's getting her flowers. Yeah.
2: And she will retired. She was like, I think I'm going to retire. This is a bit right? much. And then we were like,
1: but we're not ready, Anita. We're not ready yet. <laughs> you, you ask us when it's time when we want to let you right. go. But that time has not come. <laughs> so And
2: she's selling more tickets now than ever. I know. Because I think the younger generation, again, is experiencing her the ones who weren't even born when she, you know, when her bigger hits were were here, and they're having this wow experience for the, for the greatness of who she is, and uh, this whole Las Vegas thing, and well, really, is beyond Las Vegas. Anywhere she goes, is a hundred percent sold out. That's big.
1: Now you brought up his name a second ago, so I have to ask you whether or not this story is true. Our, our friend, music soul child, who is a wonderful sang at my wedding. Yes, and congratulations. Thank you. But I read, is it true you passed on love? Oh,
2: my gosh. Can you believe
1: it? <laughs> Which is music's big song, You Passed on Love. So
2: music's old child writes a song for me. Uh, I've, oh, it's so many of these great stories. Like when I think of Michael Jordan, it's, it's so many of these things that have happened to me through the years. The beauty of, of that, though, when I first heard Love, it was beautiful from the beginning. It really was. It was a great song. but music singing it and doing the demo was what made the difference. And it was the reason why I passed on it. I listened to him sing the song and it was, he had a way uh, uh, because he was defining his own style that he was singing a little behind the track and he had a, you know, it was a different feel that was uniquely his. And when I listened to him sing it, I just thought, I think it's his song. And I said, I hope this becomes a big song for him. I like it the way he's singing it. And it wasn't, I would have never performed it in the exact same style that he did. That's the only way I could really, really place it. That because when I first heard it, that was all I could think of. I said, This, he has a unique way of presenting his music and singing that the song and everything deserves
1: that and i just was like
2: i hope that it becomes a huge song for him and it did right?
1: <laughs> and it and it did it, it took off but that's one of those um like one of my favorite questions to ask actors is like what's the role you turned down that you still think about to, to, to this day
2: it makes me go back and i should have i should have re-recorded it right just to see what whatever <laughs> <You should've,
1: right? laughs> but it's it's interesting that you noted that about him right away when he sang it, that he didn't even realize he was really writing a song for himself. Yes, You know what I'm saying? Like He didn't realize that this is my song, actually.
2: You know what's so funny? And a lot of people don't know this. I love my life. I've been so blessed. When I listened to you talk to Jill Scott and music, it reminded me that I was there. Not something I talk about a lot, but I was there at the beginning of their careers when Music is sleeping on carving sofa. you know, Jill was coming in uh, to Philly, and she was like, "If my, I just want my album to come out, I don't understand why they can't it's talk about you." And what was my role? You know, it's, fu- it's funny when you, you end up places God like, puts you places and you're like, "Wow, what did I contribute sometimes?" I was there with flowetry before they came out. When I started my career, I met Jazzy Jeff, as we know him and went to Philadelphia. And he had this whole camp called A Touch of Jazz. Vidal Davis, Andre Harris, uh, Carvin Hagans, Ivan Barias, um, Keith Pelzer, shoot, I'm trying to remember everybody's name, but I knew that something was happening. That, that's so, I don't know if you've ever been at a space like that, Jamel, where you're in the presence of great, because I know you're around a lot of great greatness and want to, in, in, from sports or whatever, you see careers, very early and you probably can look at the person and go, hmm they'll probably make it. They probably will destroy themselves.
1: <laughs> they <laughs> right. probably
2: would you know, you probably going that. <laughs> but I saw something great happening. And I told them, I said, I want to, I just wanted to be the first person to give them an opportunity in the mainstream. So I said, we're going to record something for this movie. Did somebody just asked me to do this movie called Love Jones. And I want to come down here. So I went down to Philly and we work on this song called I Can't uh, I can't get enough of you." And once I finished that, it was so much fun that I was like, I need to do this whole next album here. <laughs> just, I just need to do it all here, which reminds me of your interview with Jill and how she was like, man, they would pick me up, they would take me to the studio. It was organic. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I'm coming in with all this money and this cachet and I have to be this big star. It was like, no, nah, these are my brothers, these are my sisters. And we're just going in, and we're creating whatever we can, and figuring out how to outdo ourselves.
1: Didn't you work on uh, work on lately with Jill?
2: I did, yes, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting. And then Kanye samples it, and I mean, just just all this brilliance. Once I finished doing the album with with them, it was it was almost like I was the the sifter, if you would. I, I was the one that shook things up for a minute, so that they would be validated, but then the things that they that didn't need to surface at the top were sifted away and their greatness just began to rise. So everything that they touched after that, Days Like This was still the, the song that, that Michael Jordan was listening to and that whole album was my Philly album. So I believe that we were a little bit ahead of our time, if you will. That's the only way, because these guys were just so brilliant, so phenomenal. But then all of a sudden their time hit. Jill Scott comes with that first album and I remember sitting down with her and saying Jill don't worry about your album not coming out right away. Just know that when it comes out you want it to be the right time. And all of a sudden, you know, the Chris Rock show comes and she gets this huge debut. The Floetry album they were putting together all these songs and I'm sitting there going, "Wow. We they were like, "We have this song that we want to present to Michael Jackson." I was like, "What?" And I was like, yes, that would make him. And, and I have nothing to do with the success at all. But the fact that I was there, it's like I'm the like some people say, I wish I was a fly on the wall. I was a fly. On the you wall. were
1: that fly. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
2: Music coming in, writing that uh with Tarvin and and uh, the the song Love and some of the other songs that he had written for himself. And I just sat back. I could not wait for his album to come out. That debut album was fire. I used to play it over and over and over.
1: Because <laughs> oh, you didn't choose love. It's okay. I mean, it, at Beating least- Beating myself
2: it, up because I didn't choose-
1: <laughs> At least it still came out. We all still enjoyed it. Yes, right, all right. It would have been worse if that winds up in a vault- Right. You know, somewhere, <laughs> right? Like, right. at least it got to say, Um That's true. Yeah, everything happens for a reason.
2: Everything happened, you know, everything happened so i felt like i was a part of that that whole history and i'm so gracious to have witnessed it and um and to maybe have been a voice to push some of the, some of the artistry forward.
1: Well, that was, you were part of a a movement for sure. Um, Listen, it's so much more I want to ask you about. We definitely have to get into your origin story because I'm trying to figure out how you went from architecture and city planning to becoming (laughs) Kenny Lattimore. But I'll ask you more about that in a moment, but we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more with Kenny Lattimore. I believe I disclosed before that my best friend Kelly is getting married and I'm the maid of honor. And as part of my responsibilities, I was in Memphis recently where Kelly's fiance is from for their engagement party. And I got a story to tell about how while I was in Memphis, I was able to check something very critical off my historic sites bucket list. Before I get into this story, I have to get this off my chest real quick about Memphis. The Memphis mosquitoes are perhaps the worst I've ever experienced. They on some different shit. Those mosquitoes on some steroids, some Similac, meth, something. Because them mosquitoes jumped me. I mean, tow my ass up, Jack. But every bite was worth it. Because while in Memphis, I got a chance to go to the Lorraine Motel, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. unfortunately was assassinated in 1968. But it has been converted into the National Civil Rights Museum. If you are able, I cannot recommend strongly enough that you go visit this museum. It's extremely comprehensive. It's emotional. It's far more detailed history than I expected, starting from the transatlantic slave trade and ending with King's assassination and the impact that had culturally and on the civil rights movement as it continued. I'll admit that as much as I wanted to go, a part of me was a little hesitant because I didn't know how much of this experience would be built around just the assassination. I didn't go there for the retelling of how King was murdered because there was so much more to his life. I'm so glad my reluctance was unwarranted. My biggest takeaway from the museum, and I don't know if this is something I truly thought about before, but what makes the civil rights movement even more impressive than it already is, is noting the ages of some of our civil rights heroes when they took on a fight that would become the ultimate blueprint for every marginalized group to gain footing when it came to equality and equity. John Lewis, for example, was only 25 years old when he led 600 protesters over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama to draw attention to the need for voting rights, an event that became known as Bloody Sunday because Lewis and others were attacked by Alabama state troopers with billy clubs and beaten mercilessly. So many students and young people across the nation organized lunch counter sit-ins to protest segregation and they were grassroots organizers and organizations such as the NAACP, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and of course, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, who participated in the Freedom Rides, where groups of white and African American civil rights activists went on bus trips through the South in 1961 to protest segregated bus terminals. Point being, it drove home how young people should be the core of today's movement, which was definitely the case with the Black Lives Matter movement. As old folks, We have to continue to encourage young people to stay active and organized because they're the heart of these movements in many respects, especially at a time where there is a concerted and consistent effort to erase, minimize, and flat out whitewash our history. It's more important than ever that we be proactive in visiting historic places that add context, meaning, and significance to the Black experience in America. One of my favorite moments at the museum was watching a Black grandmother who had brought a couple of her grandchildren to the museum. She quizzed them kids after every single exhibit. She made them recite King's principles. She explained to them in detail what the transatlantic slave trade meant. You know how kids are. I bet some of them were thinking, dang, grandma tripping. Nah, kids, your grandmother understands the mission and is trying to set you up for success. And now back to more with Kenny Lattimore. So I mentioned this before the break. I did not know you went to Howard. I don't know how I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. My mother was an educator there. Uh, God rest her soul. She passed um, in 98. And the, the tough part about, well, I grew up on the campus of Howard because she also received her undergraduate and master's degree at Howard. So when it was time for me to go to school, my parents did not want me to study music. They were like, well, do you want to teach? And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to teach it. I want to be in it. I want to be a part of it. And being from Washington, D.C., we knew how to be a doctor, a lawyer, or what have you. We didn't know how to do music, really. So they said, well, why don't you get a fallback? And I hated that term. Fallback. I'm not going to ever fall back. <laughs> but they encouraged me to choose something else. I had been going to a science and technology school in Maryland, and I was in an architecture program. I was taking architecture classes, and I did enjoy that. I, I still enjoy the residential. I enjoy the appreciation of architecture, let me say that. And um, But that's how I ended up studying it, is that my parents were like, you need something to fall back on. And I did well in it. But in my second year, I had a record deal. I really got my record deal in my first year in school. But the second year, I tried to just stay in school, and they were gracious enough to allow me to... Go to fine arts and take classes. The great and amazing Denise Williams came, and she's taught master classes in the music industry. And she brought people in from all different types, like engineers and background singers and commercial singers and all that. And she expanded my mind and thoughts about music. And I decided at that point that I wanted to do everything, and I actually did, from singing Folgers commercials and Verizon commercials to singing background for artists like Tevin Campbell and Ray J and just lot of different people that you would never even imagine, as well as having my own career. Um, and that really came from Denise Williams uh, visiting Howard University.
1: It's interesting you say that your parents were telling you like, you need a fallback plan, even though from my understanding, it was your mother that gave you voice lessons, correct? When you were young.
2: She was the one that suggested me taking voice lessons and sent me to the classes and she taught me to be a visionary. She sure did. But I guess there was that balance of the practical living and vision so that there were no limits. So she never told me not to do music or to do architecture instead. I think that she saw it as do architecture in addition to. So I was a Maryland Distinguished Scholar for music, I think that, which means that um, I had to sing before board and do like Classical stuff and different languages and, and different things that would prove that I would be worthy of a scholarship and that I would want to go on and study. And, um, to have won that, it was, it was tough to turn it all down and say, no, I'm going to, to Howard for architecture. But, um, yeah, I think that they just wanted me to do it in addition to.
1: Now you once sang or could sing or maybe still can sing in nine different languages. Is that correct?
2: Well, I did. Yeah, I, I sang in nine different languages. So I have an understanding of certain phonetics with regard to language. Uh I'm currently working on an Italian piece um that is pretty popular. Um, it's called Parlami d'amour. I'm trying to get back to the classical because what I'm what I'm understanding about myself is as long as I don't get so caught up in the, the pop music industry where I feel like I've arrived, I don't get bored with it. You know, I, I want to continually be a student. I want to continually evolve because I don't think anybody ever arrives at anything. <laughs> I don't think in marriage we do it. I don't think in our careers we do it. No, no. I think that we're constantly evolving and figuring out how to be the best we can and, and keep it interesting, keep it fun.
1: Well, since you brought a marriage, this is my entry point to talk about Miss Judge Faith Jenkins, uh, who, yes, who you are are married to. And you all recently had a daughter. So how is the new girl dad life going?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's it's really funny. I call her my little sweetie, my sweetie. Uh, She is bringing a new appreciation of life to me. Did I ever think I would have a baby at this time in my life? Nope, not even close. So it, it's, it's like there's certain things I remember. My son, who's in college right now and am, am doing some music things, music and business. Um, KJ is doing phenomenal. So there are things I remember, but that was like 20 years ago. It makes me feel more comfortable, though, that I had him, it, uh, particularly at this infant stage, because I don't know how comfortable most men feel with infants and you know picking them up in the feedings and all that kind of stuff, but and changing diapers and all that, but I love that. Oh, I talked to her and I'm like, oh, look at the diaper. I, I get to be animated and crazy. Hey, baby. You know? <laughs> it is a blast. It is a blast for me. But I can tell you this, I got on stage, the first time that I uh, got on stage and talked about Skylar, I, I was like, oh, I'm gonna create this moment. As you see, I'm dramatic. I get, you know, I, I, I put my hand up in front of my face like I have her head, and I start to sing this song. Why did I break down? Jamel, I was like...
1: Wait, but was it an ugly cry, or was it... <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was like, what is going on? And I had to tell the audience, I was like, I, I thought I had it all together, how I was gonna make y'all cry. <laughs> I was gonna give you this moment. And I fell apart up there, and I realized how blessed I am. And it just, yeah, it wore me out in that moment. I was so grateful, and I, I had not had a chance to express that on stage. So, woof, I let it out that night. I was uh, out there with Miss Layla Hathaway. I was like, Layla, hold on, please let me just. <laughs> I'm sorry. I need a little more time. Let me gather myself.
1: <laughs> From what I understand, you, um. You and Faith, you guys, it was like a blind lunch date or like set up or? <laughs>
2: it was, yeah. Thank God for good friends, right?
1: I'm telling you, they, they was looking out for you.
2: <laughs> they were looking out and they were like, oh, I, I was just, I was telling my, my buddy, Aaron Lindsay, who's another phenomenal producer and uh, writer, multi-Grammy and dove, and he does a lot of gospel music. So there's a lot of substance to him. He's a great pastor and he and his wife are good friends of ours. And one day, Aaron says, you have, have you ever met Judge Faith before? And I was like, no, I think I've heard of Judge Faith, but I didn't know that much about her. And he says, you know, what? I, I was doing something with one of her shows, and it was like you guys were on the same vibration. He said, the way that I hear music is almost like in sound waves. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen Pro Tools or one of the, if, you, if you've ever seen music being made in the studio when we sing or whatever, a sound wave is made. And he said, you know what? It's like you guys were making the same sound wave. And he says, I just thought they probably would be perfect for each other. I think that I should introduce them. And then he talked with his wife about it. And uh, she said, yeah, I think you should. And the rest is history. It was as simple as that.
1: I also read that you all, uh, after you got engaged, you all went to counseling. We did. What did you get out of it?
2: One we call it pre-engagement counseling because a lot of times when you have when you got the ring on your finger and you're engaged and all that, there's still a feeling of obligation where you're in already. But it was like, I wonder who we could be as communicators if we don't have that pressure of, oh my God. Everybody knows that we're together, and if I back out, it's it's just more of a production, it's a hassle, and oh, maybe I should just, there was nothing to lose if we found out that we were not compatible. So what you find out is, are we really on the same page? Because being married to me was about um, two people committing to the same commitment, is what I, I usually say. And at least understanding what that commitment is even as you evolve and change, the core values of that commitment have to remain. There has to be a we, marriage being sacrificed for me. And then there are things about me that I wanted her to know, little quirks. I'm like the super neat guy, the super neat organized, the way my brain works. And in order for me to run the corporations that we have, because I was running two, and do my career and all that, I have to have things a certain way. I don't make you be me. That's another thing. I, I'm not, but I try to just be transparent and say, look, when I come home, this is the way I like stuff. This is the way I, I operate, blah, 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 blah. Is that okay? <laughs> because it could get on your nerves. You could be like, oh my gosh, I got to come home to this dude. I'm not like this. Um, you know, it, it's, there, it's the little day to day things that eat away at relationships a lot of times. It's not usually some big, huge thing. Um, Now, people not being together or splitting up might be a big, huge thing. But through time, I think sometimes we find out that you don't like a person. You could love them with, oh, I really love them and I respect them, but I don't like them. (laughs) And the day-to-day thing, just eat at me and eat at me. But when you understand who a person is when you're going in, It just allows you to make a better decision and it prepares your mind so that you can figure out, do I, you know, do what, are we committing to the same commitment and do I fit into this equation in the same manner uh, as I thought without all of the romance and all of the other, you know, fun stuff that goes along with it that pushes people to make the decisions to commit before they're ready sometimes.
1: You know, as as the public knows, is that uh, your first marriage, you were married to Shantae Moore. After that ended, though, did you see yourself getting married again? I did. I actually was like, yeah, I would do it again.
2: Then I didn't. Nah, I don't think I'll be married again. Hmm. Oh, yeah, you know what? Then I'd, I'd, meet, I'd meet some young lady and be like, hmm. you know, there's hope. <laughs> so I dated for like 10 years. I dated and uh, very quietly, though. I was like, I'm not giving this process of my life to the reality stage. I probably broke some hearts. You know, when you're healing and you want to be whole for someone, the process is different for everybody. But I know for me, it was, I, I needed to hear some affirmations. I needed to be validated. Coming from a strong mother, the first woman that I ever fell in love with, you know, my mom. There were things that I uh, probably look for in my spouse. My mother was entrepreneur spirit, very vibrant, businesswoman, great personality, gregarious, not always gregarious, but you know, beautiful personality. Like Almost everybody was like, your mom is amazing. So you look for certain types of characteristics as a man, or I did, in my wife. Sometimes I'd see that in the women I was dating, or I'd see glimpses of it. But I just took my time and I was like, you know what, let me take on. Then I'd ask some of those questions. Like uh, I remember, and I'll just say this because nobody's gonna know who this person is. There was a really amazing young lady that I met, but she lived in a different state. And I had to ask myself, you know, do I really want a long distance relationship? And then we both had children that were the same age. And I was like, I would never dare try to get her to change her life and end her time with her son in that state and try to bring them to California or do it. I was like, no, our timing is not that, you know, and I kept dating and I would go on and on, but I had to be honest with who I was at that time and the things that I felt like I could commit to. But what I can say is that I had healthy dating experiences. They were really great for me. And in spite of the talk that was swirling because of whatever the anger that you know the the other person had they never judged me over it they never took that in as truth you know any of what people were were saying they they were like okay no I'm gonna I'm gonna let him let me know who he is as opposed to me establishing a relationship based on a relationship that ended <laughs> you know I'm, I'm gonna allow him to be who he is and show me who he really is as opposed to you know, taking somebody else's information from television or whatever. And uh, I think that allowed me to arrive at a great place so that when faith finally was presented to me, I was very open about just everything that had happened, particularly because um, I was having the unsung, I don't know if you saw that from me, but I had an unsung series. And Faith and I got together a month before that unsung came out. (laughs) So I had just interviewed and talked about my life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And through that unsung, I felt like when we were dating, I probably overshared in the beginning because I was like, well,
1: let me lay it all out on the table. You're
2: about to hear (laughs) all of the stuff about my life. Let me lay it out so that you can figure out whether you really, you know, Excuse me, want to go through this process with me uh because some people get overwhelmed in things but I love Faith's strength. I love her uh sensibility, her clearness about who she is and because she's an attorney and an investigator <laughs> and in in the crime space and all of that. You
1: better be careful, Kitty.
2: <laughs> right? I was like, "Hey, <laughs> I knew that she would do her due diligence and I wasn't sure whether she would appreciate everything that I was putting into my unsung and it was nothing negative. It was just information. You know, it was information that some people are, are more like, nope, I I, I completely want to be, I I had been private all of my life really. And I never really wanted to do unsung, but I realized that in the space in my industry, that Unsung had become the behind the music for R&B singers. It wasn't what it started out as, whereas it was for the singers that no longer had careers. I knew I had had a new song, it was climbing the charts at the time that I did it. So I was like, yeah, let's do this Unsung and talk about all of that and um, allow people to hear that what's Unsung is not my career, but it is my story. It had not been told.
1: Somebody said this to me, and I wish I could remember who it was because then I would credit them. But they said that marriage is not a reflection. It's a mirror. Oh, my gosh. I know. I was like, "Ooh, they, that stopped me. I was just like, <laughs> oh, my God. It is true. So what have you seen in this marriage to faith? What's in the mirror?
2: Mm. What's in the mirror for me is um, definitely sacrifice. In the mirror is, is uh, the desire to understand the various perspectives. What's in the mirror is appreciating history because all of us have a story, just like mine was told openly on my Unsung series, different things that I had gone through. Everybody has a story of the things that shape them and make them who they are. So when you continue to hold that mirror in your face, I think it allows you to forgive. It allows you to appreciate, again, the human experience that everyone goes through something. And if I can hold this mirror in front of my face, it will make me more sensitive and give me the humility to love beyond experiences that I've never had. Because sometimes we judge people based on, you know, well, I can't believe this happened or that. Well, or you just said this, or, you said that. But if you stop for a minute, you go, "Oh, I know why." Being introspective, hmm, maybe I would feel the same way had I gone through this experience over here. Maybe I would be more guarded if I had experienced the same thing that she did there. So, I think the mirror in front of in front of the face should bring a humility to anyone if they're honest with themselves.
1: Well, you've talked about on this podcast just how many. Um different evolutions of R&B that you've seen and gone through and experienced, what's the closest you ever came to quitting the industry?
2: Ooh, wow. What a great question. I think once I did finish the duets and I had to make a decision, did I want to reestablish who Kenny Lattimore was? That was probably the time period somewhere around 2006 or so where I was almost like, what do I really want to do? Because I felt like when I did the duets, it started out nice, but then I kind of lost who I was. And Timeless was that album. If you ever go back and listen to Timeless, I got a lot of criticism when it first came out because it was an album of cover songs. But I needed those cover songs because I didn't know who, who or what I sounded like anymore. And sometimes you can't do original things and figure out who you are at the same time. It's just some people do great with it. But for me, I was like, no, I'm just trying to figure out who the singer is. I wanted to get back to the the very lowest common denominator that I came into this because I just loved to sing. Can I get back to it? Can I bring something to something that's already great? And that's when I recorded You Are My Starship. And I uh, I did something by Al Green and Jeff Buckley's Everybody Here Wants You, Elton John. I did all these different songs, but I did a ton of different genres, and it was on the Verve label. That helped to revive me because I think I was probably at my lowest point then from a musical standpoint. I had become a stronger businessman, and I was managing a lot of things with regard to entertainment. I was learning everybody's job. There was a time when I felt like God told me, learn everybody's job, because if you're going to be the boss for real, you need to know what they should be doing so you can hold them accountable. So I was in a different space altogether, but it wasn't creative. That was the period. And then it took that album to let me go, wow, oh, I remember this again. I remember singing. Oh, you know, and as I started to tour a little bit more with um, the Timeless album and all of that, it was like I fell in love with it all over again. But it wasn't until 2015, 14, 15, somewhere around there, that I started saying to the hearts of women and the minds of men to encourage them in love, it's my purpose. Everything went deeper at that point because I had had the success. I had had all of the stuff, the house and the picket fence and the whatever else, you know, the dog, whatever, you know, whatever people think is success, I had it, but then it was like, okay, Now what? you got to dream a new dream or or something. And that's when I said, well, let me think about what has been the purpose of this. What will my legacy be? And it was to sing to the hearts of women and the minds of men to encourage them in love. The more I embraced that, it was like I took off like a rocket. Something else happened in terms of what was established under me. And then I was kind of lifted from where I had been uh, the years prior.
1: Kenny, I thank you so much for spending this gracious time with me. But before I get you out of here, it's not going to be an easy departure. <laughs> okay. Before I get you out of here, there's a game I play with every guest that appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and the game is simply called This or That.
2: The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. Or you can get with this or you can get with that.
1: Give you two choices and you have to pick one. Okay. Okay. You have to. I have to.
2: Okay. No middle of the
1: road. No third choice coming out of nowhere. You gotta pick.
2: No middle of the road. Okay.
1: Okay. Bad boy having a party or never too much. Never too much. I see I like how definitive you were with that. You were like, boom, it's never too much. <laughs> Try me.
2: Now I like the other one too. I do, but that, never too much.
1: Woo. You, okay. you know, Luther <laughs> is somebody I still feel like is underrated. And I don't know why I feel that way. Because, But it feels that Luther is underrated.
2: Luther also went through not fitting in and feeling like he should have crossed over and been promoted at least to everyone but he never felt like he was promoted across the board to all ethnicities. It was all, he was always a Black thing. And that was a big deal for him. And particularly at that time, I remember him fighting for that. And he was at Sony. Now, Luther, I went to see when I was 16 years old with my mom, too. She took me in one of my high school crushes, <laughs> so It was like a, a chaperone date. And uh, it changed my life. When I saw him perform, I was like, I want to do that good grace of life when he was and all this other stuff and you could feel it in your chest i was like "Ah!" it was crazy i said that's what i want to do with my voice i want to be able to and then at the same time he could break the song down and just caress it so many colors and levels of expression in what he did but okay that's my my luther moment
1: (laughs) no no that's uh, listen uh, on the list of people i wish i would have seen when they were alive it's Luther Whitney. Those are the two for me. Like I never saw either one of them. I've been able to see others, you know, but I just, I never got a chance to see them. And so, um, so yes, I'm, I'm immediately jealous that you got a chance to see Luther in concert. All right. I know you were on both of these soundtracks. So the Love Jones soundtrack or the Best Man soundtrack.
2: (laughs) Wow. Love Jones. I'm going to give it to Love Jones.
1: That was a hell of a soundtrack. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: And because it started it all, it was almost like Love Jones just set this standard. And it was a vibe. You know, a lot of a lot of soundtracks were great songs and music put together. I'm so glad that it has is lived on and it's touched so many lives too. Uh, and that soundtrack, yeah, it's just just phenomenal. What an amazing vibe.
1: Yeah, that was definitely during the the era of like when in some cases the soundtrack was like better than the movie. And you're like, oh my god. Right,
2: right. <laughs> That's true too. They, yeah, they had all
1: these incredible soundtracks, and it's it's a shame that 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 sort of is not a thing anymore. Because
2: I know, right? I loved writing for movies because it's something about seeing a scene, a scene, and like even in the Best Man, I know I chose I chose Love Zone, I did, <laughs> but in Best Man, I remember them showing me the scene of Monica Calhoun coming down the steps and the beautiful girl. I had started the song with Jamie Jazz and. Uh, Jubu Smith. And I was like, this would be perfect. And they gave me all kinds of references and things, but it's nothing like writing to a movie. It's just a very different kind of experience.
1: And finally, I'm going to ask you to pick between your two favorite children, For You or Never Too Busy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to say For You, because it is the defining song for my career and for my legacy. Um, even though Never Too Busy came before it, the depth of it is, um, it goes as, as far as my mother again. When I was in high school, my mother said, you know what? There's something about you and this kid, Kenny Laram. We didn't call it prophecy then, but when I look back on it, it's like she just said something about you and Kenny Laram. You're, you're going to make it together. I was 18. You're talking about She passed. 10 years later, Kenny gets married to this song for you. He wrote for his his wife, Ellen, and he just graciously allows me to put it on a demo. And the rest is history. Wow. So that will always have a tremendous amount of significance in my life. And I just remember seeing my mother's face saying that to me, Latimore and Lyrum. Something's going to happen. Latimore and Lyrum. And it did.
1: <laughs> she knew that song is, uh, it has stood the test of time. I swear to God, everybody got married to it for like a solid 15, 20 years straight. Like, oh my God, everybody's getting married to this song. <laughs>
2: Absolutely. And for Never Too Busy Kipper Jones, Dave Hall, all, I love them. Thank you for starting my career. Kipper did like so many of my albums, he, he established the lyrical content for the albums. He really did. Because I you know when you're a new artist coming out, I, I was writing, but I wasn't writing everything. I needed somebody that had more experience who could lead me and mentor me and and that is what Kipper Jones did, and it made a it made a huge difference so that everything else could complement a song like for you.
1: Well, Kenny, I want to thank you for spending this time with me. It's been so great to just pick your brain and hear your stories and of course see how wonderful life is for you now i'm a big fan of both you and faith and i just wish you guys all the success all the blessings and everything
2: thank you so much i appreciate it and uh i guess now i'm officially unbothered you are
1: officially unbothered (laughs) yes you have been on the podcast (laughs) thank you for having me yeah no problem all right y'all kenny is getting out of here y'all know what's coming up next final segment fucking unbothered
0: Hit you the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered
1: Recently, President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, pled guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges. And as part of the terms, he would avoid prosecution on a separate gun charge, ending an extremely lengthy investigation that mostly centered on whether the president's son was using the family name to unethically broker international deals. Right on cue, Republicans were outraged, criticizing Hunter Biden's punishment as too lenient. But then came another plot twist that I wasn't quite expecting. And fuck it, I'm bothered. Scores of Republicans are using Hunter Biden's punishment as an example of white privilege. And it got me to wondering, what part of the matrix is this? Byron Donalds, a black Republican congressman out of Southwest Florida, tweeted unironically, The party that preaches about white privilege does a great job of practicing it. Don't believe me? Look no further than the slap on the wrist of Hunter Biden compared to minority Americans that did equal or lesser tax offenses. Where's the outrage from minority activists? Oh, I bet he thought he had a gotcha there. Byron Donald's tweeting that with a straight face while also supporting former President Donald Trump. One of the greatest examples of white privilege in American history is why Harriet should have left some of us behind. Now, just on the basis of being white and the president's son, it's safe to say that Hunter Biden has definitely enjoyed some white privilege throughout his life. Now, according to prosecutors, Hunter Biden earned more than $1.5 million in each of the years 2017 and 2018, but failed to file income tax returns despite owing the government more than $100,000 for each year. FYI, he paid the overdue tax bill in 2021. Now, let's do Trump twice impeached, lost a five million dollar sexual assault case in which he was found liable for battery and defamation, recently indicted in connection with a criminal investigation into whether he took government secrets with him after he left the presidency and obstructed the investigation. Oh, and since we want to talk about taxes, remember that Trump paid seven hundred and fifty dollars in income taxes in both 2016 and 2017. And a jury found Trump's company guilty on 17 counts of criminal tax fraud and falsifying business records, levying a one point six million dollar penalty, which is the maximum. And yet he's still the leading contender to win the Republican presidential nomination. Cackles in Obama's tan suit controversy. I just think it's funny how. Donalds and other Republicans are suddenly going up for white privilege existing when this particular political party has told us about 511 times for 511 years that white privilege, systemic and institutional racism are myths. But now that the son of a political foe is getting the legal hookup, now they want to engage in some critical race theory. I don't give a damn about Hunter Biden, but just so I'm not a hypocrite, if it makes these conservatives feel better, I'll make it known right here, right now. I am not voting for Hunter Biden the next time he runs for political office. Oh, wait. Stay unbothered.
0: Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh, my word.
1: Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper, and Project Manager is Jess Borison. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It, I'm Bothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Pry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. On behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music, you can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill.
0: This sound like theme music She dropped word of the week It's best to use it Church. Unbothered, never losing Jamel asked this or that Get to choosing <laughs> Pick one. Child of 7' 5' and 21 Wave goodbye to 45 Bye-bye. Don't make me tell you 511 times From politics to laugh. Every week she shines My word How I live it. You don't wanna, it. wanna miss it I was born to get it And you don't, don't forget it back For a minute I was born to get it my word, how I live, it, you don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.